Hello Bailey here. Today marks a special occasion as Data Driven welcomes our first three-peat guest, Mark Tabladio. In his third appearance on the podcast, Mark is Cloud Solution Architect on the Strategic Missions and Technology Team at Microsoft. Enjoy the show. The recording has uh, started and we can continue, I guess, uh, bantering. I know Frank likes to open the shore, uh, show, the shore, the show, Frank. Go ahead, open the shore. Not, if you not Jersey Shore. No. <laughs> it's been interesting because I think the last time I saw you was right before the plague hit. There you um, go. Uh, you were up for an award up in the Javits Center. And that would have, Was that December 2019? I think that's the correct time frame. Uh, we were all in New York. Uh, my manager came and also another one of my teammates, Kumar Sista, was there. And then a whole group of us that uh, were representing Microsoft. And also at the time, and we had, a, I forget what their, our AI program of the time was. Uh, we have been cycling through these AI programs, trying to figure out you know, what is our stride. And right. although I refer to some of these as being the AI graveyard, I don't mean that in a bad way, because yeah. I think for each one, we're learning something and we're trying to figure out, all right, what works and how do we need to repackage that? So that part of was part of what that motion was. And we had one of our executives uh, give a talk too. I remember at that uh, particular conference, but I haven't been connected to that conference um, since then. And of course, that was before pandemic. So, yeah. right, it's a different era. Like, I mean, it almost feels like a closing of a season for, right? It it <laughs> really does. It really does. Like, I, I normally I'll cut this part out, but this part was so good. I think I'm going to leave it in as the intro. Okay. Because this is <laughs> well, the, welcome this is everyone. Point. Yeah. That's, yeah. Right. So, um, you, usually this is the virtual green room, but uh, we we Mark's been on the show a couple times. Um. This is your third appearance, if you count that um, live stream that we did from that conference. We did. Um, and uh, that was the last time I saw Mark in person. That was the last time I saw a lot of people from Microsoft in actual person. Uh, yeah. And it has, you're right. I mean, uh, this has been a changing of seasons because, you know, I left Microsoft. I went to two different startups and now I'm at Red Hat which is a completely, you know, open source type environment. And, uh, you know, I've even gone to two in the last uh, seven days. I've been to two AWS themed events. Wow. Get this with a MacBook. Nice. So, like it's it's like I bumped into some folks I knew, um, Noel Silver yesterday, and she's like, who are you? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Um, you're multi-talented. You're multilingual. Uh, you're multi-technology, multi-cloud. Exactly. It's all there. Platform. Yeah, yeah. And I'm already on edge, so I guess you're on edge. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Edge. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. I got to make that into a better joke, but yes. Um, <laughs> but no. So I mean, it's it, it's interesting because I think you're the first three Pete we've had on the show. So yay, congratulations, and um. It's fascinating to see kind of how AI has evolved over the last few years. And yesterday was Dev Nation. It's 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 mostly a Red Hat focused event. And we talked about AI. We talked about so two things I've noticed is that one, ethics is now at least mentioned in a lot of these AI conferences, right? Which at one point I don't think it was even on 
most people's radars, which is good. Oh, well, there's still plenty of work to do in terms of AI ethics. And two, um, there was actually a session yesterday on quantum computing. Um, and what was interesting was because uh, IBM owns Red Hat. So there's like, I know IBM has done a lot of that space. But what's interesting is that there, the talk was delivered by a Red Hat or an IBMer. And the talk was DevOps for quantum computing, which I think is a fascinating, I mean, talk about like looking ahead, you know, it's fascinating. Yeah, and I'd love to explore both those topics. Uh, I'll I'll say on that second one, I actually did a recording on quantum computing. It was part of a summit conference um, by Arango DB, which is kind of an open source product with the commercial side behind it, similar to Wet Hat, but they're a database. And uh, I had, it, as it turns out, you know, I have a Twitter feed. I tweet stories that are interesting and quantum computing i went back and looked at my tweets go i was i've been tweeting about this like five six years now right. i'm not an ex expert in the area but as things have come out as microsoft has been making announcements i've been tweeting i mean you can go and search them so they wanted me to talk about quantum uh, computing and machine learning and i said what little i know i mean it was only a half hour and uh, i was encouraging people to get uh, hands on the Microsoft uh, options that are there right now. And I did it myself and I, I showed some of that as part of the talk. But uh, oh, nice. right now it's to, to me a case summary. Uh, it's for the type of work I do today. It's still a bit sandbox type of uh, applications. I don't see any um, immediate driver. And I also, you know, when I think about tools in the toolbox, I was making this analogy uh, this week that Sometimes people will have these uh, allegiances to tools like maybe U.S. college football teams where hmm. that's their team and they will stick with them and they will invest time to make it work. Even if they have to hack it, they'll push it forward because they have a vested interest. And that's I, I, I appreciate the passion. I know where people are coming from. I think about it more like Home Depot or Lowe's, which, you know, are home improvement stores. Go in there, and quantum to me is just another uh, possible tool in um, in the space of things we have to choose from. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it because it's not it is radically new, but it doesn't solve everything, right? You're never going to have, you know, a quantum laptop per se. You might have a QPU uh, akin to a GPU, but it's never going to replace kind of traditional silicon, at least for the foreseeable future. Right, right. Right now they. Uh, they're relying on simulators, which right. is going to, you know, be the path for now. And again, a simulator might get up pretty far. And, yeah, that's... And get into a whole whole class of uh, solutions that were not previously available. There's a lot of excitement there in that regard. Like, you don't have to wait for the actual quantum hardware to be there, mm -hmm. right? It You can actually start experimenting with this now mm -hmm. uh, on traditional hardware. And, you know, Microsoft has been, you know, they've, they have Q sharp. They've been, mm -hmm. they've been working on this. I mean, I first was exposed to it in 2019 at MLADS, which, uh, Microsoft, what is it called? Uh, machine learning and data science conference. Yeah. Right. Right. Do they okay. still have those? We still have those. And I have nice. more of a direct connection these days because, uh, the producer of that conference, uh, Alex Blanton, that's, that's, uh, oh, yeah, know, it's yeah. an internal Microsoft conference. 
Uh, internal only because we often share uh, information about our customers. We can't share with the general public, blah, blah, blah. But um, we're, Alex and I now are more closely working together because uh, he, I, and two other people now are the four community leads for the internal AI and ML uh, community. And that's that's a community that's like 10K strong. Uh, nice. One of our activities now is, is the MLADS, but then like I, um, I was saying in our pre-comments, we're also having another internal conference called Airlift, uh, which is our learning uh, conference. And our focus on that conference is going to be people bringing stories from the field, at least for our track, uh, AI and ML stories from the field. What are you doing? What's working? Uh, what are the challenges? That's oh, cool. that sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the MLADS was awesome because it was internal. So they would share a lot of the secret sauce that they can't share with the general public. Right. But and like it, and it was really cool because you could get right up to the the really the people who are working on this. You know, mm -hmm. the, the old intro to the show was always, you know, where the rubber meets the road. I mean, these people really were that like and uh, I always joke like I rejoined Microsoft just get to back get back to MLADS. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we do have some limited, uh, just letting your audience know, mm -hmm. uh, we do sometimes have, uh, invite, in fact, we do typically have keynote speakers who do not work for Microsoft. They are That's partners, right. they are vendors. And I'm, I'm just calling that out in case anyone's listening to your podcast and is more curious, you know, talk to your Microsoft connections because such a thing exists. And if you're in the circle of trust of being a partner, being a vendor, uh, there's a possibility for you to participate too. Nice. I was surprised because one of the keynotes was delivered by a lady from Google, mm -hmm. which was like, that's, yep. I, I don't know how, how they fit in the circle of trust, but that seemed kind of bold to me. But, um, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a great show. Like it, it, you know, and I told Alex this personally, like, this is the best AI conference I've ever been to. Wow. Like it's just that far off the charts. So, and if you work for Microsoft, it's, for you so yeah and, although i uh, imagine they haven't done an in person in a while so oh they are we're back at per, in person and i was i was actually meeting with alex yesterday and our internal team oh, cool. and he was bemusing that you know trying to get uh he actually thinks we need to get it more um more uh, marketing uh behind the conference but here's the challenge and it's not just that it's not just this conference it's conferences period you know, what is the future yeah. of conferences? Now, I think people know that there's value in that, uh, the interaction, but the question is how is still being, uh, you know, worked out? Because a lot of people now have changed their daily rhythm. And at least for Microsoft, uh, and I, I can report something, you know, locally. We just opened in Atlanta, a new office in Midtown Atlanta. We had an MTC, it was north of Atlanta. Now we are in Atlanta proper two buildings a five and a ten story building could house 1500 employees and many new people have been hired and uh, i uh, i typically am there once a week i uh, i already had a work from home uh job and i still do and travel to, to customers this is before pandemic but uh, of course we're free to work at the microsoft facilities the reason i'm telling this story i think this is going to resonate no matter where people work um, I will go there and I will see certain people there a lot. And then a lot of people are not there. And I think mm. people are cycling in and out as they uh, discover a new type of work life rhythm. 
Um, and and that's that's the world we live in. And we, we've been all accelerated into that past two, three years. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I've been to a couple of conferences just in the last. Um, if you go back months, I think it's four. But if you go back just the week, I've been to two and the attendance rates are about half of what they used to be except for um the one yesterday was actually pretty well attended so mm-hmm. it's it's interesting because there's always like you know the question of how are the numbers and it's like well pre-pandemic by pre-pandemic standards are pretty abysmal but by post-pandemic standards i mean they ran out of coffee at the aws community day wow last yeah. week which you know obviously and and the uh, i forget her name but the organizer was like i apologize i didn't order enough coffee because we didn't expect this many people to show up like it's just it's just fascinating to kind of see that that happen and and like the first conference i went to it, you know it, all types of people showed these conferences but generally the extroverts are the easiest to spot and even they're like you know in in, in like the the in, People are not sure. Do we shake hands anymore? Like it's kind of like, <laughs> how much distance do we keep between people? Like what what do we do? Like either, you know, so it's kind of funny to see that. And I think the upside for that is that if you are kind of shy, like this is kind of a a, a reboot of kind of the social graces. I don't know. You're nodding, so I think you know what I mean, but. <laughs> It is, and um, and I think I mentioned that uh, we recently had a Data Saturday Atlanta. I think that was the name of the conference. A uh, similar type thing in the Microsoft facility. It was a weekend Saturday conference. Uh, Frank, to your point, uh, there was a woman there that I often see, um, and we were having a conversation. It was toward the end of the conference. She was wearing, she chose to wear a mask that day, and so, uh, but I noticed that we were kind of all ca- uh, gathered together. And at a certain point, she kind of distanced herself because for whatever reason, and you know what? People have different um, health conditions. You know, mm-hmm. I I think there's a deep respect now for uh, people choosing to either mask, not mask, or even kind of stand uh, at a distance. No one thinks anything about that now. We're just in that world. Um, but, but, it's, but still uh, comfortable enough to come to a conference. Right. Again, I don't know about some people that may not even come at all because they forget for whatever reason. So that's why, you know, it's kind of a um, it's still a sensitive topic in the sense of, you know, uh, needing to still show some understanding of why uh, people may not want to want to do that. For my type of work and my I'm customer facing, as you know, many of your listeners are, there's a certain delicacy there, too, because on, on one hand. Uh, there are some people monitoring projects saying, oh, maybe we need to lean in more, uh, mm-hmm. try to get some sort of on-site thing. And at the other side, you know, understanding that, you know, we are still coming out of pandemic. It might not be a spoken thing, but there may yeah. be some other concerns people have about their personal situation. And I think it's not just technology companies that are struggling with this. You know, mm-hmm. there was a, a news story about one of the couple of CEOs at the big banks are basically like come in or else, you know, and one of the, you know, one of, one of my favorite sayings uh, was, you know, one of the most powerful forces in the universe is unintended consequences. Yeah. And I think back to, you know, my grandmother was, would always be very hyper vigilant around, I I wouldn't call it quite out a, um, 
germaphobe, but she mm -hmm. definitely was hyper vigilant. And I always wondered, like, well, that's kind of weird. But she would have been about six years old when the 1918 pandemic. So she probably saw some things and just internalized them. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, are my kids, you know, are their grandkids going to be like, what's up with grandpa? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that guy is weird. You know, probably. hand sanitizer, yeah. bleach wipes on everything. Like, sure. It, it, and, and I think it also touches on the professional life, you know, and and and. and I, I do wonder, like, you know, we we have been accelerated into this and I, I, I've worked from home for the better part of a decade. I prefer it, right, because I don't have to spend time in traffic and all that. Um, yeah. But I do understand that for some people it's new and for some people uh, they may not like it. They may not like it. Uh, I think it's challenging for new uh, professionals, new right. professionals, either to the field. And again, that's independent of age or. Yeah new to the workforce period. And right. I find myself in mentoring uh, situations. Uh, I'm still in kind of a, a bit of a recruiting uh, cycle. If you all remember when the Super Bowl game was earlier this year, February, going to a mm -hmm. home party, meeting two young women who were Georgia Tech students, sisters, and ending up talking about Microsoft in the kitchen for about an hour both wow. of them applying to Microsoft, and then within um, two months, one of them had an offer uh, to Microsoft. Nice. So talk about, you know, uh, young people coming into the uh, workforce. Um, and yeah. I consider that at least a generation behind me. I'm Gen I'm at the beginning of Gen X, and okay. we're really at Gen Z now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're college <laughs> students. Uh, we're even through millennials uh, for uh, millennials wow. are done. I mean, as far as college, but um, that's wild. All right, so you'll like this. I, I know Andy has something to say, and I feel bad for like talking the whole time, but that's all good. <laughs> I was on a call the other day, and one of the products that uh, I'm responsible for the go-to-market strategy for is something called Rota, and I basically said like to a bunch of internal Red Hatters, "Well, it's kind of like ODBC, but for the cloud." And most people were like, oh, okay, except for this one guy who was in his, to your point, he was in late 20s, early 30s, said, what's ODBC? <laughs> oh, no. I was like, oh. <laughs> I could live with a college student saying, what's ODBC? But for someone to be like in their 30s and not know that yeah. oh, wow. was kind of painful. Yeah. So I'm going to say two things. The first is, if you can't tell, I have laryngitis, <laughs> so, <clears throat> which is perfect timing because um, uh, I'm traveling today for the first time in over two and a half years. I'm flying. Mm. Um, I'm going to speak at a pre-conference all day yesterday, tomorrow rather, all day tomorrow I'm supposed to talk. Um, that'll be interesting. I just emailed the organizers and said, hey, I've got laryngitis. Can you get me a mic? Um, the, the other thing is, Mark, I want to kind of expand on what we've been talking about, especially Frank's latest point. Um, you were the very first person I heard, and you said it on the show in your first appearance. You used the phrase digital native. Yes. And I, I think that kind of expands on what we've been talking about with people who are younger. I, you know, I especially I think they're used to communicating uh, remotely. They're, yes. they're probably more used to that than we are. We're not digital natives. And um, if you wanted to talk some about that phrase, 
uh, for people who haven't heard the first show, I encourage you to go back, listen to that first show with Mark. I believe it was in our first season. I think so. Pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah. It was one one of of our best. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mark, uh, if you'd like to expand on that. Yeah. And so there's two directions. I'd like to talk about how that impacts AI. And also, secondly, you know, going back to kind of the work thing that we've been talking about as we're talking right now. Yeah. And um, or trying to talk. Okay, I know, Nandy. You know, I hope your 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 voice comes through on that because thank you. We've all um, we've all been in the uh, situation of having to do these presentations. So maybe if I could pivot to AI, since um, let's let's go there first. Uh, kind of a trend I see um, for how even people are thinking about AI, or even the way I'm, I'm referring to it. My claim now is that AI is pretty much in every app that you use on your phone. And we were talking about phones now. I've, for, for reasons that I'm not going to immediately discuss, I have two phones now. I've got more of a uh, my uh, iPhone, which is my personal phone. And then um, I've got now uh, Android uh, as a work phone. And the, the thing is, pretty much... Behind all these apps, there's some sort of AI behind it. And I think we were talking in our pre-com comments about ethics. But my feeling right now, where that touches a lot of people, is the ethics behind social media specifically. So of all the apps that are out there, I mean, I don't think people worry about their banking app or there's many types of apps, okay? Uh, it's the social media apps, and it's the ones that are touching young people, uh, where people are beginning to say, "Oh, wait a minute, what are we sharing here? What is this? Exactly. What are they doing with this? Uh, how does what is Facebook's, you know, marketing uh, platform? How are they making money? How does Microsoft make money? How does Google make money? How does Amazon make money? And in not only that, I mean, at a serious level, uh, you know, and a lot of us here, three of us, uh, we've known people. Uh, that work at these major companies and, you know, their current friends. And uh, they think about that. They are, how, how are we using the information that's there? I mean, this podcast data-driven, right? So where's the mm-hmm. data coming from? And uh, I don't know if I said this in the first um, episode or not, the first episode I did with you with on this podcast, but uh, a lot of the data... Um, now, here's here's where I say the uh, titans of our day, the data titans, the billionaires, they're, they, have, they think through how do I get more data? How do I get it cheap? Or even how do I, now here's the thing, they're at a position where how can I get people to give me data and money? Yes, right. And money, not only are they getting it for free, but uh, <laughs> they wanna make the proposition so strong that people will give them data and money, which is what they want. Now, of course, they're going to have wow. to do something with that. That's going to imply a uh, you know reciprocal value um, add to that. But the people like Elon Musk, who I think is fundamentally in a data business, uh, and and I'm I'm not kind of I've kind of followed what's happening with Twitter, and I'm I'm not up to date with that. But I know that that's going to be part of his um, data strategy. But Here's where I align that with with other efforts from the past. A lot of the um, big tech companies want to have a media footprint. I think this is important to talk about social media. So there's a social media, and then there's a traditional media. And for Microsoft, that was MSNBC, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not 
currently, you know, a passion project, but, uh, you know, the point of uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, I think he's got the, um, was it the Washington Post? The Washington um, Post. Right. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's a there's an alignment with traditional media and social media. Right. So going back to uh, you know without going to all those details, just leaving one point get you get your all's response. I think a lot of the um, concerns about ethics and AI are coming from um, people's everyday experience with social media and especially with apps that we use with whether it's WhatsApp or whether it's yeah. TikTok or whatever it is. Yeah, I, I think you you pointed out something very intriguing um, yeah. and I hadn't really thought about it till you mentioned it, which is why we love talking to you, Mark. Um, <laughs> I was in Walmart, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago and Walmart being Walmart, things are not where they're supposed to be, right? That is what it is. So I was looking for the uh, UPC scanner, right? And apparently one of the, a helpful employee came over and said, oh, we got rid of all those. I'm like what? Yeah, you're supposed to use the app now. Whoa. And my kid asked, well, why did they do that? Like, why would they want you to use the app? And I was like, that is a good question. And then I realized, because once it's on your phone, they have their foot in the door. Yeah. And they have access to all kinds of data that they wouldn't have if they just simply had the That's device true. that you would just wipe the barcode under. So yeah. you're right, like, and it's not just the the usual suspects, right? Like, you know, you, you you think of, you know, the term big tech, I think is, it's relevant and I think it's overblown, like at the same time, right? It's not mm -hmm. quite like sure. big oil or big pharma, but like there there is a there is a there there, but it's not as the big bad wolf, like some people will make it out to be. Yeah. Um, and it's more like the big bad stink bug infestation <laughs> and, and i mark i don't want to lose this before we move on you mentioned elon musk and data and before yesterday i would have probably said and we're recording this for those listening on the 6th of october uh mm -hmm. thursday the morning of the 6th i would i would have maybe argued with you about elon musk being in the data business but he said something curious on his twitter feed yesterday and what uh, for those who may not know, tomorrow he's supposed to, you know, basically take over uh, Twitter, and he's made some interesting plans public. Uh, the one I find interesting is he's going to open source the algorithm. Uh, that'll be very interesting, I think. And but the other thing is he made an allusion to something called X. Right. I'd never heard of that before yesterday, so maybe I'm behind too uh, on this, but. It's all he and he said this is the beginning. And, you know, you couple that with earlier this week, uh, late last week, the introduction of the robot that he's invested in. Um, you're, you're right. He's he's going in different directions. Uh, he's already doing, you know, SpaceX and Tesla and the boring company. Everybody mm -hmm. knows that because all of us want a flamethrower. OK, maybe mm -hmm. not all. Of us. I do. I totally uh, do. <laughs> it's great for clearing land. I, I so, so no one gets a bad uh, impression. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's an important point. And I'm curious to learn more about what exactly X is. It is. I'm curious yeah. too. And, you know, I, I, I use Twitter heavily. I probably have more followers than I know in my field, uh, with, you know, kind of the data science type community. I'm not an entertainment celebrity by any means. So I'm not you should in the be. millions, but 
No, we're not as entertaining as 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 you all with this podcast. <laughs> but uh, but to your but Andy, to your point about X, uh, so we're calling out. This is a trend to follow, right? And you're hearing it here, um, October sixth. Okay, we'll probably come back to this because uh, we have to ask, what is Elon Musk doing? And if you what you what we've seen in the news is. Oh, he's doing something political. Oh, he's doing something for high tech, like uh, organization. He's going to clean house and he's going to make all those fake accounts and Twitter go away. And oh, oh, maybe he has a political viewpoint and he's he wants to promote that or right. something like that. That's been what's dominated the news yeah. um, news cycle for the last year or something like that. But here's what we're asking, because this is data driven. Is he buying a database? And that's a different way to think about it. That is. Now, these, yeah. I think the the narrative so far, I think it's true. I mean, there's a lot of truth. That's why that's it's had some life. But but when in the mind of a you know a billionaire, and I, I don't know what that's like, but I, I know that there are <laughs> many things you think about that are sure. connected. Yeah. And I do know that there had been, even from the beginning, some synergy. Uh, comments about what value does this have to what you're doing. Now, we're kind of living it out in a small scale here. This this podcast is a media footprint, uh, and and we're saying that this does have a value to a technology, uh, to technology professionals. All right, mm -hmm. Elon Musk is asking this type of question. What value does this have for what he's doing is going to be something worth watching. I agree. I definitely agree. I, I totally agree. So um, one of the things that I got a lot of, I, I garnered a lot of respect for him, uh, for Elon Musk, was listening to the his unauthorized biography. It was authorized, and he didn't like how he came across in it. It's called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. I, had, I didn't really have an, uh, I had a lot more respect for him after the book than I did before because it was just interesting here. like yeah. it was um uh, it was an interesting read and I guess x he loves the letter x for some reason like it came up he wanted to call one of his big falling outs with PayPal was he wanted to call it x pay or something like that like okay. like so like the x like keeps reappearing so it's SpaceX like you know it's it's, it's just pretty fun I don't know why thing. yeah but like it's it's like it's in the book and it was like it, it's interesting so audible is a sponsor of the show so if you go to the data book.com you can pick it up. It's worth reading because Elon Musk is one of those people that, you know, he's a fascinating character. Like history books will be like, so there was this guy, Elon, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it'll be like an interesting thing and um, uh, love him or hate him. It's good to know his story. Like he, he fascinating character. Right. And we, we have to say, you know, going back to kind of just AI. So much of what Microsoft does today is driven by open source. Mm. And we, we yeah. talk about this uh, eth ethereal open source, ethereal Python, ethereal Spark, ethereal scikit-learn. Mm -hmm. All right, it's all out there. But I like to think about it. I don't think these ideas have their own will. They are shaped by people like Elon Musk about what people, you know, he might not be a contributor to Python, a contributor to Spark, but his initiatives 
drive people to use AI technologies to achieve goals. And when he, when someone like that has kind of that imprint on a field, it does help uh, drive the conversation forward because he is one of the uh, billionaires that understands what AI can do. Yeah. No, that is a good point. And, yeah. but you're right. I mean, open source, uh, obviously now I work for Red Hat, so I've, I've, mm -hmm. I've had more exposure to the open source Kool-Aid than the average person. But open source is by definition a community kind of driven mm -hmm. product. If you were, right. you think back to kind of, you know, when you had a proprietary database or proprietary technology, that was a reflection of the culture of the company and the team. Open source, at least theoretically, is yeah. a, a, a collection of a gestalt of the community, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the community that can kind of move in these different directions. And good mm -hmm. and bad, I can easily see it going like cutting, you know, cutting, cutting for you and cutting against you. Like I can easily see it uh, going either way, but, um, but you're right. And, and, you know, I remember going to, I think it was build 2016 where they gave out, I have it somewhere, uh, you know, a little, uh, penguin that, that said Microsoft heart Linux. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and there was like a whole Linux booth in the Microsoft, um, uh, expo floor. And I just turned to, I think it was Joel Cochran, who's also been on the show and said, can you imagine if you went to a coma in like 2011 <laughs> and then woke up and then you came here, you would think you've entered some kind of weird parallel universe. And I mean, it's just amazing to see kind of the, the, the rise of open source. Right. And I'll call out some of the, some of the projects in open source for AI uh, that have become prominent for Microsoft. One's called Interpret ML. That's entirely open source, and it's its own website. Nice. So the team has said, "All right, we're going to call it Interpret ML. We're going to make that available. It is a largely a wrapper around Python libraries, but it's got some mm. goodies that Microsoft has added, and it's also how uh, Microsoft's doing responsible AI inside our Azure machine learning project." A second technology, Synapse ML. It was previously called MML Spark, and it's also open source. It's also got its own website. Mm. I think that helps people find it. And yeah. uh, it's also the bits behind doing distributed compute algorithms. So we're talking about things that will work with Synapse Analytics, and that's going to be that's you know yet a second project. And then a third project, which is not even necessarily Microsoft's. MLflow. So MLflow is, again, open source, and Microsoft now has doubled down on making that the core API for Azure machine learning. The wow. analogy I'm making now is that it's similar to the commitment to SQL. SQL had kind of a community standard behind it, and in the very wow. early days, it was very primitive. It's come way forward, and it's created you know, Oracle, SQL Server, and creating them into huge things because we now have momentum behind it. Well, right. Microsoft's saying, all right, there's many ways to do what MLflow can do. We're going to do it the MLflow way. That's it. <laughs> and that's going to be our, our commitment and then trying to pull some value out of that. So those are like some three, three things that 
those three those things I just mentioned have been yeah. new in, in, let's say, the last three years. Uh, they have existed in some form, but now, um, you know, where some things I think are not production ready, all three things I mentioned right there are production ready. This is where we're taking our customers right now. But that's interesting, Mark. <clears throat> and one of the things we do here at uh, Data Driven is we sometimes ask the uh, uh, difficult or challenging type questions. So I'm I'm going to kind of put this into perspective and hear hear your feedback on this. Yeah. I'm not I'm not mad. I don't have a dog in this race. I'm a data engineer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I said dog in the race. It's not just my throat that's messing up. Um. <clears throat> so. It, it appears, at least from the outside looking in, and I know Frank does AI and machine learning a lot more than I do. He actually does that sort of work. I still f feed the data in it. We, as we joke, um, I'm the person who focuses on, first you get the data. <laughs> so it appears from the outside looking in that Microsoft pulled back some on AI a couple, three years ago. Um, and, and I would say not, not so much AI, it's probably more what I saw was in quantum computing, but I equate those because I see AI as being one of the big use cases of quantum computing. And I, I could be all mixed up here. And if I am, this is a great opportunity for you to straighten me out and, uh, and, and let our customers know really what, you know, what happened and what's happening and, and kind of the direction that Microsoft is going in. I know you don't specifically work in quantum, but I do know it fascinates you. I, I follow you on Twitter. I read your tweets and many of the articles that you post and also on LinkedIn. So just if you could speak to that sure. and, and let our let our folks know what's up. Okay, so a little about quantum and then let's talk about uh, where I think um, some of the recent AI things that we did pull back from as a company. So uh, first of all, um, you know, I, I, I did a uh, presentation this week uh, it was for RangoDB on quantum computing and machine learning. I think that's going to be generally available, um, you know, open to, for people to see what I said there. But uh, really short because there's not, for my circle of uh, customers that I work with, there's not an immediate application, at least not one that I can see. Um, but let me pivot to some things I can see uh, where there's some momentum. Uh, by the way, in that in that um, recording, I, I talk about Q Sharp and some of the services that are now available uh, on the on the Azure platform. But nice. um, there's been some. Uh, there was a, a language called CNTK. CNTK. That was a deep learning. And I see uh, Frank nodding your head. You remember that? And what happened was uh, this is this is my telling of the story. At the time, I was very eager to get that in front of customers, to get them start using. And the reason being because there had been some published work that at the time showed that it was more efficient than TensorFlow. So there was proven results that, you know, there was a lot, there was that. Okay, so what happened was within the period of 12 to 18 months, all the energy dried out. And I don't know exactly what happened. Here's what I, here's what I have piece together that I think is true. Even inside the Microsoft culture, there's not an ability to completely control how the engineers uh, finish their work. So there had been, um, you know, a lot of people eager about TensorFlow. And of course, TensorFlow has come a long way since that the time I'm referencing, you know, maybe that's three, five years ago. 
type time frame. And so a lot of the energy has gone there. And it, as a result, energy to put into CNTK and drive that forward uh, dried up. And I haven't done a case analysis of ex exactly all the factors that went into it. I will call out one thing. You do need community to push that forward. So gotcha. it's not just that community does something. Community has to be a pusher. And then there also has to be, as we were talking about Elon Musk, there has to be some interested customers that are are putting uh, some big projects out there to solve. There are a number of things have to happen. And, and, and you know, these are just some of the elements. But uh, OK, so the energy dried up for CNTK, pulled back from that. And, you know, now TensorFlow and some of the other library, PyTorch has been popular since then, uh, have driven forward. Um, OK, but there's also another side to AI. Uh, because AI has already been highly successful in doing a lot of things, um, my experience has been people are more interested, the customers I work with are more interested in using it than building it. And when I say building it, I'm talking mm -hmm. about the deep neural networks. So okay. they might do transfer learning, okay, and that's okay, but that's not completely rebuilding an entire uh, network structure. Sure. Uh, then there's two reasons. One is it takes a long time to build a neural network. Uh, it could take months. And I had been working internally in Microsoft again some years ago. There was a retail team, uh, or actually it was a retail application. They had an actual team working on something. It was taking like three months for every build and wow. for what they were doing and for the equipment they had and for the scope of what they were doing. And that doesn't just mean processing, that also means data prep and also uh, building the business case. And I think a lot of people look at that and they go, wow, that's, that is a lot of work uh, to go through. And, you know, a second concern I've heard from in, mostly from industry, but this also affects the customers. And that's kind of the uh, resource consumption because mm -hmm. deep learning can spin up, um, you know, a lot of bills. <laughs> it can be expensive. And right. I'm glad we have choices today to send your project out there and run for days and even use monitoring and logging tools to make sure it's still on track or even restart things that fail. Okay, we have all those systems now. All right, but who wants to go through all that? And what, are you, what, bill, what type of bill are you looking at, at at the end of all this is a question mark. So uh, for that reason, and then, you know, and I will lean into people who are pro-environment. I agree. I mean, why do we need to, this does leave a carbon footprint, period. Sure. <laughs> That's part of the cost of uh, doing compute. So uh, for those reasons, a lot of the AI quote unquote story uh, for Microsoft has pivoted into um, you know, a lot of REST APIs, things that will do something. They will translate uh, text to speech. They will translate languages. They will analyze your text. They will analyze your image. They will analyze your video. And you know that's kind of, uh, you know, we now see this a heterogeneous world of data. So here's the thing I do think that that is exciting. We talk about the momentum that's gone forward. Yeah. Again, uh, in Frank's time machine from from 2011, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one thing I did somewhere along that time frame. I don't know if you all remember a uh, semantic search uh, from SQL Server, and there was I a did. major purchase. I think the company uh, that Microsoft bought. Uh, I'm thinking this number is correct. They paid $200 million for this company that did semantic search. And at mm. the time, um, you know, we were all in the SQL Saturday 
a circuit and I downloaded Wikipedia to my laptop and I put it into, I, I put about 10% of that into a, a SQL Server instance and was showing people how to retrieve uh, information quickly. And this is just text, yeah. right? That was considered novel, uh, something in the 2011 timeframe. If you, if you uh, accelerated forward, um, and again, just looking at decade type analysis. Sure. Now we're talking about uh, being able to do any type of data possible. And we'll open the conversation for whatever data folks have. Uh, right now, I'm working on a project to try to unlock value from PDFs, turn oh, that back into a searchable database. Microsoft's not the only company that has that type of technology. I mean, we have yeah. Azure Cognitive Search uh, to be able to do that in some of our text analytics. But we're going back to what I think the SQL so secret sauce is behind why people want one of the major reasons, and not the only reason, why people want a relational database is because of an index. It yes. gets you there fast. That True. is one of the reasons. Not not the only reason, but often a key reason. It, it, a reason that's so important that people specialize in how to make better indexes. All right, yeah. that's their yeah. whole career because we want to get there faster and or more efficiently or whatever the the goal is. So. We're back, you know, what is Azure Cognitive Search? It is essentially an index, period. That's what you get. Um, so there have been, you know, kind of um, hiccups, you know, maybe uh, maybe CNTK, you know, didn't get that um, community support or groundswell interest, sure. even though it proved it, it was a better. How often in our lives have we seen the better technology go to the wayside uh, because something else had more momentum. And yes, yeah. I, I don't know all the reasons why, because I wasn't, I'm not close enough to the CNTK story to know, really, yeah. <laughs> why did it go to the wayside? But yeah. I do know it was better. Uh, I, I guess I'll pause there. <laughs> no, no, I, I will yeah. second that. I will second that. It was better in a lot of ways. It was definitely more efficient. That was my impression of it. Yeah, but it just didn't catch on, like for 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 reasons large and small, and known and unknown. Uh, I will say though, at uh, the last SQL Saturday, uh, Boston, I was at uh, before the mm -hmm. pandemic. I did grab a CNTK sticker. Oh, and somebody from that MTC was like, "He goes, oh yeah, that's a collector's item," and I said, "Yes, <laughs> sir, it is." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, it sounds like it sounds like the technology uh, just in general, software in general is um, is still affected and mm -hmm. impacted by the same types of business cycles that happened in the past. When you were talking about, you know, the better technology losing decades ago, I was a technician and mm -hmm. I used to work on video recorder and, and video players. And this was during the days when you could still get Betamax. So the Sony Betamax versus VHS, and the Betamax was clearly a better technology, but VHS won by, you know, better marketing and a couple of dirty tricks. Um, but those things happen, <clears throat> and you know, while while they may be unfortunate for the end users, um, it's it's not unheard of, and it's going to happen again. You know that those sorts of things are going to happen. The, there's a reason the engineers don't always win. In fact, we rarely win. That's why Elon's such a fascinating case study. He is an engineer. 
<laughs> right, and he wins more often than he loses, which he, is an he interesting. He definitely does. Yes, but I also think it's all about picking your battles, right? I mean, you could argue that mm-hmm. you know, Silverlight was better than Flash. It was better mm-hmm. than HTML5 at the time, but yeah, you know, it didn't win out. Why? Well, the real reason is because Apple killed Flash or any third party. Um, engine like that on the iOS platform, which basically meant, you know, it was it was a more of a uh, against Flash as opposed to that. And there were there were very real security and performance problems with Flash because it had yeah. not really been updated or cared for through the years like it should have been. And Silverlight was collateral damage. So, you know, yeah. uh, I don't want to get too nostalgic for Silverlight, but, um, <laughs> you know, particularly CNTK and Silverlight. But I mean, but I, mean, I was on a call like like a month ago and somebody referred to TensorFlow as legacy technology, Whoa. which I was like, what? wow. And it was like we were debating. In what context? Because so it, we were talking do about, about building things or using or what? Uh, for the product that, uh, well, I have to be for a product. Yeah, a product. <laughs> for a product. <laughs> and you folks are clever. They can figure out what it is. Um, you know, there was debate about continuing support in future versions for, um, you know, for TensorFlow and wow. and in favor of PyTorch. And, you know, everybody was like, there was that, wait, it's legacy now? There was that kind of reaction. And I was like, look, you know, and then there was this fight of, you know, it's not legacy. It's still very relevant. No, 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 right? And, and I was like, wait, look, stop, stop, stop. Even if it were to disappear tomorrow. There is enough code out there in TensorFlow that we right. need to support it regardless, right? So mm-hmm. stop the fighting, <laughs> right. right? It's going to be relevant even if it disappeared tomorrow. And then I look at the angry people when I said that, and it's not. But if it did, <laughs> right. it's still going to be relevant for the next three to five years, guaranteed, right? Because mm-hmm. that's just the life cycle of things. Now, granted, things do tend to move fast in AI, but... Um, I think I think CNTK's issue was timing. I think it 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 just didn't time the market right, and mm-hmm. it, it it was better. It was, uh, if I recall correctly, it was the toolkit that was put together to add AI uh, stuff inside of Office and other Microsoft products, and it was really built to be efficient, so you can quickly do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that people took that as, even though it was open source, people assumed there was some kind of proprietary eye to it. And I think mm-hmm. that might have also played into it. Again, I, I, I was, you know, I wouldn't say I was certainly not close to the fire, but I was, you know, kind of in orbit of kind of what was happening. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a good product. But again, the best product does not always win. Well, you know, it's interesting, Frank, because um, this absolutely does not occur in the data integration, data engineering world at all. Ever. That's sarcasm. There's got to be sarcasm. <laughs> Why would God. you say that? And I don't even have to. Your video froze, and I was like, I don't even have to I see know. your face. Like, I add oh, sarcasm. All right. Well, yeah, who's been asking for SSIS in my world? Zero. I'm just saying. <laughs> and again, back to 10 years ago. Um, you know, I was being even kind of, I was working with solid Q at the time and talking with their leadership. They really, really wanted me to go deeper in SSIS than I was at the time. I was the AS, uh, interest because of data mining, 
uh, because yeah, of yeah. cubes, which were the big deal. Uh, yeah. This no, no, SSIS. And you know, that whole debate gone, even between yeah. those two. Uh, now we've moved on to data warehouses and um, and other topics, right? And you're going and Andy, sure. you're going to be talking about uh, Azure Data Factory pretty soon. I am, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, doing that a uh, couple of couple of things, and it's <clears throat> you know what's interesting. Um, I'll just say this about most of my customers right now are uh, calling me because they've got a ton of SSIS and they want to migrate it uh, either to the cloud period, or sometimes they want to convert it to Azure Data Factory. And, you know, it's it's a common occurrence. And I, I see this huge wave of work, uh, that at least that's coming to me at this point, I should say, mm -hmm. that's all about hybrid. Mm -hmm. So in order wow. to get from on-premises to the cloud, and maybe everything in the cloud eventually, there's this space with that we're in right now. And it's been the past few years. Uh, the work has all been kind of aligned with that. So it certainly helps to still be familiar with SSIS. There's some, uh, you know, a lot of packages out there that are still running enterprises. And I, I don't say say that in the same context as I would uh, talk about COBOL, but there's a lot of people out there still supporting COBOL. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of legacy systems. And, and I imagine a large chunk of their work is in converting COBOL to something else uh, as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember a quote from Buck Woody I saw years ago on Twitter, and I'll paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly, but he said the, um, there's, the, there's another name for legacy code, and it's code that works. <laughs> you know, if it didn't work, it you know, there's that whole is it worth converting it conversation. I have that conversation every month uh, mm -hmm. now with with new and existing customers every single month. There's a better way. We know it would work better. If we built it today, we'd build it like this. Mm -hmm. Is it worth converting it? And it's a it's really a business question. It has well, engineers will always want to rebuild it, like to make it better and faster. But realistically, Pretty. like. You know, one 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 of uh, my customers when I was um, still um, a CSA at Microsoft, you know, they went with us. They went, we won that contract because another company told them they were a heavy mainframe based company. Sure. And um, you know, another company told them, no, you got to replace the mainframe totally. Wow. And my pitch was, well, you probably should. But why don't you just take it like one bit at a time? You know what I mean? Like you, you, you kind of have this. The example was a, a news story. There was there's some tower in San Francisco that is tipping over. Um, like a multi-million dollar con like unit condo like thing like, oh, and it's tipping over, and they keep trying to fix it. And thus far, they've not succeeded. But I, I kind of said it like that. It's like it's like that building, right? If you wanted to put a new, you don't want to demolish the building. You want to see what you can do to kind of work around it, and then replace the mainframe in phases, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. I mean, ninety percent of their business came through this one mainframe system. I was like, you yep. don't want to replace that. And it's like right. even if the hardware fails and you can't get a new one. At some point in the future, mainframe emulation is probably going to be a big mm -hmm. cloud service thing if it's not already, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't yeah. want to replace it all at once because that the risk of that is off the charts. Mm -hmm. I can understand the temptation for an engineer to want to do that, but like you have to not 
you can't knock down the tower while you're trying to put in a new sewer line yeah. or something like that. Like so, so that you know the the, the respect and appreciation I had for their existing system, uh, I think is what w helped me win their hearts and minds. It wasn't so much respect as I said to them. I was like, it's more fear mm -hmm. <laughs> of that. Um, there you go. Yeah, Cobol.net. <laughs> so keep, so I keep pulling for that. You, yeah, make Cobol.net Azure um, Azure Cobol.net. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the ideas I had would be like you would take you would just basically get a list of data of inputs for certain programs and then train the algorithm based on that input and output and just see what would happen. Like maybe you could. I don't know. It was just a, it was just a wild theory. But um, what's interesting was and in getting back to kind of ethical AI and, and Microsoft's kind of pre bundled pre made services is. They recently decided they were going to um, change, uh, they were going to put restrictions around the computer vision APIs. Right. Uh, which I have mixed feelings about. Like, ethically, I think it's the right thing to do. If you had a business or you had a, some critical process that took a dependency on that, yeah, I know there's going to be some kind of grace period, but but still, like, you know. But I think, you know, one of, one of the restrictions is going to be, like, you know, they're not going to assign emotions they're going to eliminate that. They're not going to assign emotions to somebody's face, right? Because that is not, it's presumptive of a lot of things. Right. Um, so I understand why they want to get rid of that. But what's interesting is, is that, you know, I don't know, like, I, I, it, it, I think to me it speaks to if they had thought, um, um, if they had thought about the ethics of it first, then that API never would have come out and then people never would have took a dependency on that API. Like it's, it's one of those things where you kind of, I'm sure it's not unique to Microsoft, right? You get to this junction sure. in the road where, gee, we should have thought about this sooner, but what's the more painful choice here? Mess up the API or do the ethically right thing, right? It's easy for us to, you know, sip our coffee and say, well, we're gonna do the ethical right thing, right? Because that's as easy for us to say because our skin's not on the line. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So uh, that is uh, still a concern. Uh, there was a concern about some of the uh, data sets we're training uh, to identify people. Me as a darker skinned person, a lot of the early training sets were biased in the sense of the pool that they were they were coming from. But there's there's two arguments to that. Who is your customer? I mean, if you right. if you are have a data set trained and it really does represent the people that might uh, be tagged, for example, by computer vision, what's wrong with using that data set? But the question is, uh, you know, we work in a global company and there are many cases where people are uh, of different uh, backgrounds and now it's going to become culture specific. So right. um, going forward, uh, and I think we I don't know if this was part of the podcast or before, but we had talked about uh, the training that, that's gone behind some of these large neural networks. And a lot of them have been generic. And I think going forward, uh, it might be good enough to use them, continue to use them. This was kind of legacy code. Right, right, argument. right. Okay. But uh, <laughs> it's funny to talk about neural network as legacy code. It right, already right. is there, right? So, um, but there might be a need to build something entirely new based on a new technology, based on, you know, what, you know, build a neural, neural, neural network, PyTorch or uh, TensorFlow, 
and then just experiment, how would that help for a new business challenge is going to be the serious question. Uh, the academic challenge of just seeing how things work is what tinkerers like you, me, and so many listeners of this podcast, we're just willing, we're just willing to go out there just to test it, just to test it. Right. Uh, maybe no uh, immediate business challenge. But in the business challenge, uh, it's going to be a different question. That is going to be, is this new system going to help uh, with what I'm doing? One of the um, onboarding projects that that I've worked on, um, you know, uh, Azure has released its uh, OpenAI service, mm -hmm. and we had a customer approach us, and they wanted to do two things. They wanted to uh, use uh, a use that service to construct SQL queries. I think that was the harder problem. Uh, the second one was to be able to use OpenAI to summarize text. So in different from going to a search engine, instead of just typing in uh, something, some topic, and then getting a list of links back, they wanted actually OpenAI to go in, read what those links are, and give a meaningful summary of what they found. Because they trusted, all the source was internal, so this is not you know, the wild west of uh, you know, random search engines, but they wanted to be able to bring something meaningful back. And these are the types of things that are very uh, domain specific. That's the point I'm getting at. Domain specific means that, um, so here's the thing. In, in our AI world, the model becomes part of the code. Yes. It is the code. So uh, when we talk about legacy code, uh, the model now becomes part of the code. And retrain a new model means to get new code. It's right. one and the same thing because that's all it is. It's just a function. Okay, yeah, so right. how you make how we make that uh, and when to make that, when to go to new code, is really the the orientation. And I think a lot of data scientists, you know, they think about the mathematical side to it, but uh, and then there's the mathematical side, the aspect. There's a data aspect. Where's the data coming from? But then functionally and then long term, is thinking like a developer. Right. Because this is a developer exercise. To make an API is, as uh, Microsoft has done pretty much with all our AI technologies and even made a path through Azure Machine Learning, they are now part of a development cycle. So there's a need to think like a developer. And that, Frank, the themes that you're talking about, the legacy code, that's part of it. Right. I think a lot of it is, I've seen this with customers across multiple companies, is data scientists don't like to think of themselves as part of a larger process, typically, right? They mm -hmm. they are used to the time when data scientists were very much rare and unicorned. And now, I wouldn't say they're a commodity, but now being part of a much larger process. And upside is that now they're a core function. Mm -hmm. The downside is, is that because they're part of a larger process, they have to play by certain rules and certain mm -hmm. um, processes. Right. And some of it yeah. has to do with what you were saying, the restrictions on how uh, computer vision's being used, right. you know, and uh, legal review, perhaps. Yeah. And, and in addition to that, the whole idea of the DevOps wrappers yes. uh, around it, too. This is, mm -hmm. and it, I, maybe I missed it, but it seems relatively mm -hmm. new to be hearing those conversations. It is, it is like, and I, I have them a lot in my day job at Red Hat and, you know, it's yeah. kind of like, um, 
you know, it's alarming how many companies still have their data scientists working on their individual machines and then yeah. eventually cobbling together something to push to production, which is like, really? Yeah. Um, and I what? would say, I, I also point out, and you know, Mark and Andy, you can tell me if I'm wrong or right. Not a lot of companies have their data estate and their data AI ML pipelines well put together. I would say no. Those zero. are those are the the zero unless they're a brand new company. I was gonna say and I was even gonna then, say, even then you're inheriting somehow yes. or you are borrowing somehow. But yeah, I mean, totally I would say in terms it. of having the processes lined out. I mean, I've I think it's really only Microsoft, maybe Amazon, um, Google, you know, Meta, Facebook, whatever they call themselves now. I would say it's those companies do have kind of like, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm over optimistic about that. But I mean, yeah. But if you're a company the size of Microsoft, you kind of have to have that together, right? You have that collective brain power. Like, and 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 you know, if you look at how does Facebook, Meta, like monetize themselves, they do it by mining your data. There there has to be some kind of clear process in place. Yeah to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So I would say, I would say, so, so that's what I say. I talked to customers who are not in that field and I was like, don't feel bad. Like there's really only a handful of companies worldwide that right. really have this figured out. What I don't tell them is that they may not even, those handful of companies may not even have it all figured out either. Cause once they get something figured out, they move on to the next thing that's not figured out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we see this in, in kind of the startup culture that's been around since the years began with a one where it's a maturity model, you know, mm -hmm, and right. you get to a spot where it costs you more to not practice either DevOps or something like that, something that fills that role. Right. It costs you more to not do it than, you know, than it does to, to go ahead and implement it. It's painful to make a switch like that. And as I tell uh, students, whenever I speak, uh, there's two types of developers, those, those who use source control and those who will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you you will lose code and it will break your heart, and then you will deal you'll you'll gladly accept the extra overhead of doing source control or and or DevOps or or something like that. Yeah, I I, I want to repeat a conversation I had this morning with customer about Scrum boards. So we set up a Scrum board to Azure DevOps. I needed to clarify with this customer that they had access to it. And we had an honest conversation this morning at our Scrum and with the customer, our primary sponsor. We don't have, for this project, a dedicated project manager. We know that, okay? All right, so we are going to try to do it with ourselves and with the people, with the team we have. Yeah. And uh, the our customer came to the realization, yes, we do need to figure out how to solve this. And maybe he will need to do it or he will need to find it. But we, we're at the point, uh, and this is Andy, this is exactly what you're saying. Uh, and he used this phrase, puppet master. We need to have a puppet master out there. But I said, here's, here's my add-on comment. I said, okay, I understand your point, but I said, part of making this work is that each of us has tasks and I need to be the puppet to make a puppet master available. So mm -hmm. just because you say this phrase puppet master, you still have to have buy-in from the people who are assigned the task. It is one thing to have a scrum board, but uh, even if I personally am not that scrum master, or even, you know, we're still trying to figure this out with our team, sure. uh, somebody, yes, will have to step up for leadership. 
And the challenge we have is we're, we all have other things to do of yeah. significant commitment. So somebody, right. yes, will have to be there to lead it, but also for those of us who are part of it, we need to be the puppets. We have to lean in for what we're uh, doing, uh, you know, as part of that. And, um, you know, um, another story, and I guess uh, for your viewers about what Microsoft's doing with um, MLOps, uh, this is again, a realization of something. So Andy, in the, in the story of things that died, okay, here's what happened. <laughs> we discovered around Microsoft, there were four separate Complementary, but not identical stories on ML ops around Microsoft. And oh, we're wow. talking about all Microsoft, you know, considering everything that people do. Yeah. And they said, all right, we've identified four different ways to approach this. We are all going to work together, the owner of the four things, to make a single viewpoint. And that's what we're calling ML ops V2. And I don't know if that's, you know, completely uh promoted on our public website, but that we we got to the point where, okay, we cannot have four viewpoints because sometimes a one viewpoint might be left with a customer and then another team comes in and say, oh, we have a slightly different viewpoint. Right. <laughs> right. And we don't yeah. want to disrupt yeah. a customer by saying, oh, Microsoft's got multiple viewpoints on something that where we could have a common viewpoint. So yes, yeah. I admire the work of our internal team in the last year and two uh, to bring four viewpoints to one. Now, is that the end of the conversation? No, <laughs> right. Right. but at least it gives us a, you know, a working vocabulary that's consistent uh, to be able to go forward. And it, it is true in a lot of these types of technical conversations. Yes, there are logically four ways to do, just because something's logical doesn't mean it's the only logical way to do it. And it Absolutely. doesn't mean necessarily it's the best logical. Uh, and yeah. at least what I was happy about this motion is that there was a meeting of minds without a whole lot of drama uh, right. to bring these four things together. But you know, well, it's, it's, it's it's encouraging to hear that Microsoft is also maturing, you know, mm -hmm. at, at least or at least silos within. And it sounds like that's what was happening. You had four mm -hmm. silos going and somebody looked at that and said, oh, wait. <laughs> right. We're, we're three of these are going to be obsolete if one of them wins. The right answer is let's consolidate. Let's get our story moving right. in the same direction. Everybody, you know, because everybody's probably each one of those is doing something better than all the rest. Mm -hmm. So you need all of that, those mm -hmm. four at minimum four good things happening together. Mm -hmm. And just like you said, for your customers and stuff. And I, I do, I, it's an outdated tame, uh, term. I can't talk today. An outdated uh, term, uh, uh, capability maturity models. But I mm -hmm. see that. I see that, whatever you want to call it, happening all the time. And definitely a struggle for startups. But mm -hmm. it's really encouraging to hear that Microsoft is also going through some of that uh, same stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So kudos to y'all. And I think it's a great story. So mm -hmm. thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And, and I shared not just for that uh, story itself, but I think it, it's kind of the pattern that people see when there's four different viewpoints, three different viewpoints. You know, it's no need to to turn it necessarily into a contest of survivor uh, where you're going to try to knock the other ones out <laughs> just so that your one wins because Again, there is buy-in. There's already customer buy-in. It's not just about us who know the thing, but people have already invested time 
into these different approaches. And they may need also some guidance on how to uh, migrate forward. How do I update? And I think, Andy, you've, uh, we all um, um, deal with that. When it's time to upgrade, when it's time to migrate, what is going to be the best way to do that? Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. Cool. Um, so I see we're at the, we want to be respectful of your time, Mark. Mark, we could probably talk for you for hours on end because you are a fascinating uh, and smart guy working in some fascinating and amazing technology. Um, since you've been on the show, since you're a three-peater, which is like the first, um, any new audiobooks that you've been into? Audiobooks. I already okay. did the plug for the Elon biography, which I think is important to the understand. Elon biography. Let's see. What am I reading in kind of the technology space? Uh, you know, actually, what I have been doing is I've been investing myself uh, in actually Microsoft Learn. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason behind. So does that count as reading? Uh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, you know, Microsoft's doubled down again, again, not to tell a Microsoft story, but a personal story. Some of my certifications had expired uh, last year, last cycle. In August, I decided to renew them and I only had a limited amount of time. So I said, I got to challenge myself. Uh, I, I earned uh, three certifications in four days. And part of the way I did that was having to dedicate some time into Microsoft Learn and seeing that. And you know, here's the thing that that was sad on the other side. They told me these certs have a one-year expiration. Like, what Goodness. is that about? So I don't know if that's universal, um, but I'm talking about on a, on a very pragmatic level. Uh, you know, that's what that uh, cycle has been. And then in terms wow. of just like big topics, you know, I did do a lot of prep for the um, the quantum uh, uh, piece that I had. And by by the way, we were supposed to have yesterday an interactive session. So I'm gonna give you a reading thing that I subscribe to this um, communications of the Association of Computing Machinery. Oh, and cool. just in this month's, um, and I think uh, Frank got uh, disconnected briefly. I think I'm here. back. Sorry about yeah. that, I don't know what You're happened. disconnected briefly. Um, but the recording's on here's, Andy's side. Here's what I am reading. I get this periodical called Communications of the Association of Computing Machinery. So I love this. Uh, it does come from, all right, where does it come from in terms of viewpoint? Long-term, you know, the long-term readership is this, is, is large IT departments. But mm -hmm. I think a lot of the, the themes of the magazine have leaned, like I said, into data topics, developer topics. And what's interesting about this month's uh, magazine, this is uh, for October, 2022, they have an article called Assessing the Quantum Computing Landscape, which is a better article than any of the articles, any of the individual articles I read uh, for my talk that I gave yesterday. And they went through and they, they, they did a pretty good uh, study, not just of the academic side, but they also did a business study. So I think anybody who's even doing a business study um, on this article is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine pages long. They did a lot mm. of good work in uh, dis discussing where are the business uh, investments. Uh, I learned a lot about what IBM uh, is doing. IBM is not, IBM is a key 
player in this entire topic because of, of course, their innovations decades old in mainframe, but they mm. they have come forward. They have stayed current as an organization uh, for anything that's going to affect big computing. I mean, we don't often hear the phrase big data anymore, but mm -hmm. uh, it's just part of now the landscape. And um, and uh, so anyway, I can call that out as an excellent article, uh, Association of Computing Machinery on Quantum Computing Landscape. Nice. Cool. All right, well, uh, thanks for joining us in the show. Sorry for my connectivity issues and Andy's voice, but- That's probably uh, mine. <laughs> Since I'm I, recording, I, I don't know how that would work on uh, on Teams, but we'll um, find out. <laughs> we will find out. Uh, so, Mark, thanks for again for joining the show. Want to be respectful of your time. I could probably talk to you for another six hours. Same, um, same here. And, yeah. Uh, thanks, Andy and Frank. Enjoyed being on. Yeah, cool, man. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. We know you're busy, and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. Of course, you have subscribed to us, haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And, can't the world use a little more joy these days? Now, Go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.